Hello and welcome back to Simulcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing how to make your simulation experiences psychologically safe for the participants. To introduce our guest, uh, we've got Harvard professor Jenny Rudolph with us today. She's a PhD, organisational psychologist, and most of you know her as a debriefing guru. Recently, she's just been appointed the director of the Centre for Medical Simulation in Boston. So welcome, Jenny. Hey, thanks, Vic. Thanks, Jesse. I'm so glad to be with you. Good to see you again too, Jesse. You've been busy since our last podcast, of course. I don't think it ever stops. But yeah, I've been really, really excited for us to be meeting with Jenny to talk about um, psychological safety. All right. So to kick this off, as usual, we've got a case to start with. And Jesse, you're going to tell us about one of these conundrums where we find ourselves in this general theme of uh, how do we ensure our participants feel good. So tell us about the case. Jenny, you're facilitating a sim session in your ED. The junior docs and the nurses arrive. A few straggle in late. Uh, you do around the room, but everyone seems a bit anxious and they're shifting in their seats. You really want them to relax. So you throw out there, you shouldn't be anxious, guys. This is what you do every day. They look more worried. I mean, these are sick patients, but this is a place to stuff up rather than with a real patient. One of the docs looks like he might vomit. And remember, what happens here <laughs> stays here. No YouTube videos from what we're recording as you attempt to lighten the mood. It's not like this is a test. We really just want to make sure you're okay on nights on your own. So just relax. Two of the participants dash off to the toilet for a break before you start. Familiar. <laughs> yes, I think absolutely wow. familiar. So I think that puts us in the scene. Now, Jenny, before we try and fix this, maybe you can shed some light on it. I mean, these are people who do critical care every day, a lot of them. Uh, why do they suddenly get so stressed in a simulation environment? I think the main thing is most of us think simulation and learning is a cognitive challenge. And when your skills are on display, it shifts to an identity threat. So these folks are feeling nervous, not because they don't know what to do, but because they're worried about how they're going to be seen by their colleagues. And there may even be some sense of impending doom if they mess up, as we say in the States, or stuff up, as you say there in Australia. Yeah, and I think uh, I, I sort of get that impression, but I still wonder about the distinction. Why is it that you think we feel that more in simulation than even in the clinical environment where people will be watching us? So it's a really interesting challenge. Some people do really well when other people are observing their performance, and there's even a technical term for it in the literature, social facilitation. So a public speaker who does really well with um, stepping onto stage and engaging with the audience, or think of Katy Perry, who comes alive when she comes on stage. She's benefiting from social facilitation, the interaction between herself and the audience. It's like her identity is expanding, getting bigger, connecting. Many of us human mortals, though, instead feel evaluation apprehension. And we are thinking, oh my God, my preceptor is watching me uh, do this uh, intubation that I've done 20 times in the last week, but all of a sudden I'm second guessing myself on every single move. So what happens is instead of being in the flow and using your natural talents and all the neurology and neuro skills that are behind that, all of a sudden you have a brain freeze and your autonomic nervous system kicks in and you barely can talk and you're feeling tachycardic. 
So it's because we're worried about how we're going to be seen by the people watching us, not so much about our skills. And then from the facilitator or instructor point of view, I get the impression that's impossible to pick which people are in what category without knowing them. Yeah, well, so your question um, is implying something important here. Um, we do have some leverage on as, as instructors, which is, is this a trait that is indwelling in each person who comes to us and we can't impact it? Or is this a state? It's temporary and we can have an impact on it. And this is where the concept of psychological safety that you introduced at the very beginning of the session comes in and can change everything. All right. Well, that's a nice little segue because I think that's, you know, we've thrown the term around. If you had to sort of say, well, in helping to deal with this situation, we know we should be trying to ensure psychological safety. What What is that in a practical sense? So psychological safety is a person's sense that this environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking. So what that essentially means is if I put my best effort out there, am I going to be treated with care or at least not humiliated. What we can do as instructors is to create certain kinds of agreements and project certain kinds of a vibe, basically, that helps learners feel more reassured about that. And I know from reading some of your material, and uh, we will post Jenny's article on establishing a safe container on the blog, uh, but I know this isn't just obviously in healthcare, not even in simulation Can you give us a little sense of where this concept comes from and who else is interested in it? Yeah, let me um, kind of take three steps back and then run into that a little bit. So the three steps back are, let's go back to our wonderful high-performing clinicians who are coming to SIM and they're scared exless. Part of what's going on there is they're losing their sense of connection either with each other or themselves or the instructor. They're focusing entirely on evaluation and performance. And the deep roots of psychological safety have to do with how connected do we feel with other people and actually play. How fun is this? How exhilarating is this? So most of us think about thinking and learning and um, getting better at things as primarily a cognitive and individual task. But what we've learned over the last 30 years is it's primarily relational. What we have to think about as educators working with simulation uh, participants is it's all about the relationship. It's all about the social context that I'm interacting with them on. And let me, well, let me just pause there and see how that lands on you guys. Yeah, and I think that's a really uh, interesting topic because I think sometimes we're inclined to think it'll be the level of stress that is the cause of the lack of safety. But I think what you're saying is whatever the level of challenge we've got, this is all about the people that we're working with and how we're going to feel about working with them, which to some extent to me explains why we might be okay doing that surgical airway with our peers and be in the zone, and yet we'll be completely stressed out if we have to be observed just talking to a mother about her sick child. Exactly. Exactly right. So part of what's going on with us, I'm still taking those few steps back before I sort of run into psychological safety. One of the things that's going on is how am I assessing the situation as the participant? And this is really important to us as instructors, because you're at you're saying wisely, Vic, I can't tell how what people are coming to the sim with. 
I'm going to ultimately end up saying it doesn't matter that much because there's a lot that we can do to around and connect with people. But let's go back to those, the case that you started with. People come in, they do surgical airways every day, but all of a sudden now they've got to talk to the mom, then do a surgical airway later, and they're very nervous about it. Part of it is how, I, how are they assessing it? Is it a threat? Or is it a challenge? If I assess it as a threat, that means I think my current abilities plus the team around me, I am not equal to this challenge. And if I screw it up, something really bad is going to happen to me. It's almost like our reptilian brain kicks in and we're worried that the you know woolly mammoth is gonna run us over or you know something terrible. Not, you know, somebody's gonna be looking through a piece of glass at us and seeing what we're doing. Versus do I assess it as a challenge? A challenge is, yeah, this is hard, but I've got what it takes to do this. I know how to improvise. I know how to pull things together. I know how to do a trach. I can do it. And so part of it is getting people relationally into a space where they can access the resources they have to perform the skills that they already know how to do. Or if they don't know how to do, they can see as exhilarating challenge and even play rather than dangerous and threatening. So maybe you wanted then to go to that case because what you've said is wherever people are at, there's things that we have to do as facilitators to ensure the safest container we can. So if you were walking into that case that Jesse described and watching those people shifting around and just getting that vibe, oh my goodness, the anxiety level is up here. What are the steps we, we step through to improve the situation? I think about three main things. One is some kind of story. We humans process so much information by stories. And when, you know, Jesse Spur or Vic Brazel, if you guys were the facilitators, I'm a less good example because I'm non-clinical, sat down and related a story where you were basically the goat, where you stuffed up in some difficult situation and normalized and created a context where there's going to be clearly some empathy coming from you to them around um, trying and making mistakes. I think that's one of the most important things we can do to alleviate that worry about evaluation apprehension. I ended up sitting next to a uh, family therapist a few months ago on a flight from uh, Boston to California, and I told her a little bit about what she what we did, and I asked her sort of, you know, what's your take on these dilemmas? And she said, it's all about establishing an empathic ally relationship with the learner, not a higher than you, better than you, more perfect than you, I'm looking down on you and I'm going to judge you relationship. So that's one thing is somehow conveying your that you are an ally to the learner and you're on the same level with them. So a bit of shared vulnerability and a little bit of reducing the power distance. And uh, Jesse, if you can just file this one away, I'm interested with your interest in inside your sim, how we do that when we know those people so well. I actually think it's a little easier when you know the people to to access stories that you already have some, some shared experience in. When you as say a senior um, in that work area share uh, share an experience where you've made mistakes and it actually was okay um, I find that a bit easier to tap into you're preformed a little bit with the stories that are going to connect straight away with those people you've already got that shared experience yeah and I think it's interesting and as you say Jenny this is Love just that. such a relational relational situation okay so first of all we've done is we've thought about sharing a story 
to reduce that power distance, gain that rapport, and uh, just get this sense. So that's our first step. What next? So the second step, I think, is we want to move people from this evaluation apprehension um, kind of state to a more um, one where this is an opportunity to learn and get even better. And I'm going to take a momentary theoretical detour here and just refer us all to the wonderful work of Carol Dweck, who's been studying for a long time mindsets in learning. And she contrasts performance mindset with a learning or growth mindset. And what we want to do in our pre-briefing as we're talking to people is to try to reframe this as an opportunity to get even better and or an opportunity to recognize we don't get to practice with a chance to redo or reflect. And if this were easy and everybody could do it, we wouldn't need simulation. So what I do, for example, in our pre-briefings with intact teams at the MGH Massachusetts General Hospital with you know fully qualified staff is I'm talking to some of the best clinicians in the world. What I try to help them see is this is an opportunity to be like a NASCAR team or a Olympic team practicing and looking at what you're doing to get even better. And so I'm trying to push their focus toward improving their practice rather than feeling judged and less than if they make a mistake. So framing it as opportunity. And if you like, we'll uh, I'll post a reference to that work by Carol Dweck also on the, on the um, blog post. And then number three, I think... I have a new idea to propose on this uh, simulcast here that I've been working on. I haven't written it up. I, I don't really have a research base for this in SIM, but I think it's well documented in other areas, which is I think we need to shift the dialogue from being one that feels to them like us, the instructors and each individual on the team. We need to do something to allow them to strengthen their teamness their connection with each other. Because part of that lonely identity threat piece comes up when you don't feel like you've got people who have you your back or this familiar group who's going to help you. And so I think we could do more to allow them some time and possibly even give them a little bit of a, you know, three minute structured activity to think about how they want to organize themselves as a team or to do something fun that might connect them with each other, a non-clinical challenge, um, because we want them to feel strong, we want them to feel connected, and we want them to be exhilarated and see this as an opportunity to play and try things out rather than an opportunity to fail and be judged. So I've kind of seen exercises like that where people throw tennis balls around or they do other sort of shared activities. So you're talking about an exercise like that to sort of pull the team together or at least start to feel like they're doing something together today. Could be, but I think the main focus is they need to feel like they have a legitimate connection with each other independent of us, the instructors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, just to sort of tease out the difference uh, and Jesse, your thoughts here, again, maybe that is also easier when you've got it inside your team because they will have just done something together yesterday or at least have a shared reference. What do you think? You've got the different layer of connecting the instructor or facilitator as part of the team um, in that simulation event. And I suppose the other thing I, I find really interesting with that is uh, connecting a confederate into that 
uh, teamness. Um, that's a really interesting theory and a nice, uh, nice exclusive for you to drop on the podcast, Jenny. But um, <laughs> the, the, what struck me when you were talking actually was the the relationship that that has with the mental rehearsal um, or mental practice article that was published, I think, last year by Lorello and Hicks and Co. from um, University of Toronto that showed the mental practice group actually performed substantially better than the didactic group. That uh, that would fit very well with that theory of an exercise that created teamness for them to actually perform measurably better as a team, I guess, in the simulation. Great. So then the, the other thing I think that we tend to underestimate is the importance of predictability for unpredictability. <laughs> Harking back again to the relational basis of learning, there's a really weird and marvelous paradox in how we thrive as humans. And I'm going to make kind of an odd analogy for a second here. Um, there's a psychoanalyst named Stephen Mitchell, and he has a marvelous book called Can Love Last? In the book, he talks about how, you know, in many long-term committed relationships, romance appears to diminish. And what he argues actually is romance actually doesn't necessarily diminish. It just becomes much more dangerous because as you get to know people even better and there's a greater risk for true intimacy, actually, you just don't want to share that much anymore because the risk goes up. So just think about that phenomenon of you're riding in the airplane and you disclose all to the neighbor sitting next to you. That's because there's no real risk there. So what the hell does this have to do with simulation and and um, and uh, creating a psychologically safe environment? The other part of what Stephen Mitchell says is, but we humans need predictability. We need to know that you know you're going to be the same wife I had or the same husband I had yesterday. I want to know when you're going to come home. I don't want too much scariness and change in my life. So all that containerness, all that holding environment, applies in learning. I think. And so what's really challenging for us as instructors is we've got to predict, provide a huge amount of predictability if we want people to perform at the edge of their expertise. So they need to know when the session is going to begin and end. They need to know something about the objectives. I generally talk about objectives being artfully vague. You don't have to give them completely away, but they need to know, you know, what kinds of things are they going to be dealing with. They need to know there's going to be a simulation and a debriefing or a simulation and pause and coach or whatever the, the logistics of the situation are so that they can have some things that are going to hold steady while they try to work on something that's really, really hard for them. And so that's where the kind of romance in simulation comes in. If we want people to really um, be open and be honest and, and share themselves, share their thinking in the debriefing, try their hardest in the sim, we've got to create a context where there's enough predictability to have the mystery and the unknown and the you know kind of romance of the and the exhilaration and the play. So predictability is really important part of the pre-brief. Here's what you can count on. And in your paper, you just and describe that as clarity of expectations. But I think here the benefit is we've got a bit of relationship advice too. <laughs> yeah. And so um, for Sim and perhaps relationships too, the last piece that, you know, I think is so important and, you know, so many people have done such nice, nice work with this is um, holding people in high regard. So one of the things that our group 
uh, at CMS has really tried to bring into our simulations, and we've written about this quite a bit, is really the Carl Rogers, another psychotherapist's idea of positive regard, which is I'm going to assume even when you make a mistake that there's a really good reason for it, that you're intelligent, capable, trying to do your best and you want to improve. You know, we can think like experimental economists and think people are intendedly rational. They were trying to do something good. And so when we bring that feeling of high regard to the learners and convey to them that we know that even when they, if they zig, when they wish they had zagged and it doesn't work out, there's an interesting reason for that. It's not because they're stupid or venal or weren't trying. Mm. And I think that piece coupled with the kind of empathy or allyness tends to create a context where people are willing to take more of a risk. And so this is a really basic concept simply relating to respect, as you say, respect for the effort that people are putting in. And as you say, that positive regard, which I'm sure has application to learning across the board, not certainly not just simulation, although, as we point out, maybe the ego threat is a little bit more in simulation. So it's particularly uh, important. So we've been through some of the steps that we would take, and uh, these sound like pretty practical things to do. So just to sort of recap on what that might mean if I'm in Jesse's case. So I'm going to walk in, and while I see all this shifting, uh, first of all, I'm probably going to try and recount some context for all of this and maybe talk about myself and some situations I've had that have been challenging and difficult. I'm really going to say here's an opportunity for us to improve. We know we've got some strengths here. We've got some things we want to work on. Here's our chance to improve. We're going to do some work where we kind of either make reference to how they are already a team or even some time spent doing an activity to do that. And then we're going to, as part of the words we're doing, uh, really clarify exactly those expectations. This is when we're going to start. This is what we'll do. This will be the format. And if relevant, this will be the topic and this will be our relation to why we're doing it. And then finally, throughout the whole thing, uh, we're going to be trying to exude this positive regard, which is probably easier to say than to do. And I'm reminded of Mary Fay's comment in our last uh, journal club, where learned centred was not something you did, but something that you were. And it sounds like positive regard is not something you do, but something you just have to have. Because when I heard you say that, Vic, one of the things that came to mind is one of my colleagues at the Center for Medical Simulation, Tony Walzer, who uh, is one of the co-directors of our labor and delivery teamwork course. At the beginning of every course, she says, you know, to people shifting in their seats and looking nervous. You know, I see you look a little nervous. I have to tell you, I'm pretty nervous too. You know, I really want this day to go well. I've worked really hard on it and I'm sure I'm going to make some mistakes today. And I think that idea of, you know, whether you tell a clinical story about how you might have messed up in the past or you tell how you're nervous in the moment, I think that starts conveying to people that I'm on a level playing field with you. Um, I guess that's parallel to positive regard, but it seems important. All right. So having had those uh, steps that we're going through, I suppose I'm interested in how do we know if that's working? We've made comments about looking at people's body language. How do we know if it's working? And then if we get it wrong, what is the downside? So one of the um, signs and symptoms that it's working in my experience is during the simulation, people try to solve the problems you've given them. They're really 
taking care of the patient. They're interacting with the family. They're working hard either as an individual, as a team. Um, there might be some nervous laughter, but there isn't a kind of hanging back or n- not buying in. Um, the other sign or symptom, in my view, that it's working is in the debriefing, where again, they're willing to reflect and talk with you. And this is where the second part of the psychological safety piece comes in that's so important. So uh, the work here that we've drawn on a lot is that of Amy Edmondson, who did a beautiful study in 1999, um, looking at the role of psychological safety in team performance. And that's what I think is really important for healthcare because we could say, oh, psychological safety, that's so beautiful. Let's all sing Kumbaya. Let's all feel safe. But what the heck difference does it make for quality and safety? So Amy's argument outside of healthcare and then in some subsequent studies perioperatively is that when people feel that this environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking, they are willing to engage in learning behaviors. And so one of the signs and symptoms you might see in a debriefing is learning behaviors, such as revealing one's thinking, asking for help, being willing to admit that one's wrong, and listening to others with different points of view without getting defensive. Those are some of the things that might let us know we were on the right track uh, with psychological safety. So I will... uh post the reference to that as well, because I've read that list. So you're saying if we see those observable behaviors, that sign that this team is feeling safe. Right. You also asked what would let us know we were on the wrong track. If people enter the sim and uh, stand there with crossed arms or complain repeatedly about the realism of the sim, or when we get to the debriefing, if they push back a lot on the realism of the sim or argue with you, or feel ang- or act very angry or very defensive, generally what's happened there is they feel like the game has not been fair. We haven't played fair with them, is the way my colleague Robert Simon talks about that. And it's become a gotcha game. I'm catching, they feel that we're trying to catch them out, rather than this is an important way for me to get even better at what I do. I can totally empathize with that. Jesse, I'm not sure if you had any comments because I know you've been involved in, in Situ Sim with different models, but these mock codes have always worried me a bit like that about you sort of drop in and people get surprised. But I, I suppose there's right and wrong ways to do that. My experience has been more and more recognizing the role in, a, I guess, a guerrilla or an unanticipated simulation. You have to have an exceptional confederate um, because they create the, the signing of the fiction contract, you also have to be very conscious of um, the entree into that simulation. So if it's an implausible start to the simulation and then they're not able to get enough information to, as Jenny put it really nicely, make the unpredictable predictable enough, um, they won't engage. That's been my experience and it's uh, thankfully been more through observing others run those sorts of sims that I've had to learn that lesson rather than failures myself, but it can be very awkward and they're, they're, they can be to a point of irrecoverability in a debrief um, if those things haven't been done bad. I think generally if it, the other way is, is making sure 
people that are going to be involved in it know that they're at least going to be involved in an exercise and and the purpose of that exercise. So Mm. just running a mock code, mock code is one of those phrases that just sends chills down my spine because it's usually when you go in and start running a more structured in situ program around a hospital in different areas, it's what you're dealing with, the history and baggage that people are bringing from those mock codes that have been often very uh, psychologically damaging, I guess. Mm, Yeah, really, I think, insightful comments there. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head that a lot of what we're doing is in enabling the safe container, ensuring the psychological safety, is really uh, helping our friends who might be running simulation sessions for these participants in the future. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes we do deal with bad experiences and the other examples I've got are sort of trauma courses where there's confederates who deliberately get in your way and I think Jenny's term it's not fair that's not what would usually happen and so it also I think underlines the relevance of the scenario and its uh, nature and composition for being realistic enough that the fiction contract as you say Jesse any comments on that uh, Jenny? The idea of a fiction contract comes from the work of Umberto Eco originally, and then was brought into the simulation world through the wonderful work of Peter Diekman. And one of the really important um, ideas here, it's actually very similar to this idea of creating a holding environment that we must try to do to some degree with psychological safety. We're creating a holding environment. We're creating a fiction that is inviting enough for people to step into. So Part of our obligation is to understand where they're coming from, such that, for example, uh, Jesse, that example you gave about running a code, a practice code, uh, you know, in situ, we have to understand what everybody's up against there. They're already treating real patients. They've, they're leaving a busy schedule. Maybe they were, uh, maybe they're post-call, whatever it might be. We have to create a context that's enticing, inviting, and real enough that allows them to step into it and embrace it rather than um, step away from it. So uh, part of the psychological safety of a fiction contract has to do with our meeting people where they are with respect to the level of fidelity that's going to work for them. Excellent, excellent. So I feel like we've got a good handle on how we're going to uh, approach the case that Jesse's given us. So the last thing I'd like to talk about relates to how we know whether we're doing a good job and in particular what we're all trying to encourage which is peer feedback or debrief the debrief. So Jenny you watch a lot of people debrief and if you're asked to give feedback on how they went particularly in this topic of ensuring psychological safety what do you find are the common things that we do or don't do and then how do you approach that feedback conversation? Fantastic. So you're asking me about how do we help other instructors or educators get better at managing psychological safety through the feedback we give them. One of the most common challenges is the core paradox of managing your own judgments in debriefing. So the most common way that people undermine psychological safety in a debriefing is by asking indirect leading questions, sometimes called guess what I'm thinking questions. And what is so poignant about this, I think, is people's hearts are in the right place. I say to Jesse, Jesse, don't you think it would have been better if you'd started chest compressions right away? 
And what I mean is, Jesse, you really should have started chest compressions right away. What up? But I don't want him to become defensive. So I have this idea. I'm going to ask him this gentle question. Wouldn't it have been better if you started right away? For example, the result, though, is Jesse can feel manipulated. He totally sees behind my question. And instead of my creating a stronger feeling of trust with Jesse, I may in fact be undermining that trust because when there's a mismatch between the verbal and the nonverbal cues, we are wired to see the baloney or BS. So one of the big things I counsel people on is trying to step away from those guess what I'm thinking questions and just describe objectively what do you see and either coach them to do something different or invite them to tell you what they were thinking with this underlying idea of positive regard. So that's where the uh, mind training for us comes in. So if I'm working with somebody who's a debriefer and I want to help them get better at maintaining psychological safety, I'm going to be talking to them about this basically lifelong discipline of saying, hey, that other human over there was trying to do something good. They are not an idiot. They did not wake up yesterday or today trying to kill patients. And I need to get that in my brain before I even talk to them. And yeah, it's the super. same for myself. Uh, you know, none of us are angels. None of us are saints. Uh, you know, 50 times a day, I have just the same judgmental thoughts that every other human does. And the only thing that I'm better at is the relentless mind training of trying to reset myself. Mm. And so I think this is super important because you're saying even if you set it up right, you actually do have to maintain this. And that comes down to those conversations that you're having uh, within the debrief. And I think that's really useful. All right. So this brings us to the end of talking about psychological safety with Jenny Rudolph and Jesse Spur. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And for me, the take home points here have been about making psychologic safety a priority before, at the beginning, in the middle and at the end of our simulation and its debriefing. I think I'm reminded of something Walter Epic said during our debriefing episode, which is this is a human social dynamic. And this is all about the relationships between the people, both as the participants and with us as the instructors. And I think the final take home for me is really, we've also got to get good at watching each other and being able to give that feedback about how well we're establishing and maintaining psychological safety. So thank you once again, Jesse and Jenny. It's been a pleasure. We'll hope to talk to you soon. 